greeting one another. All right. So we have to have a few seconds in between that and getting serious into uh, the Word of God. So uh, it is really good to uh, be with God's people this morning and uh, to see you, to see you all. Well, if I were to ask you, what are the three uh, top idols in your life? What are the primary uh, idols in your life? I wonder what you would come up with. I wonder what would come to your mind. You see, the reality is churches like ours, churches that preach the Bible and the authority of the Bible and the gospel, uh, we, we are rightly known and we should be known for that. But we also need to be known for searching ourselves and knowing our own souls and our own hearts very well. And I'm afraid that we're not as good at that. And so this morning, uh, this message is about us identifying our own idols, um, identifying them, knowing them so that we can defeat them. We can't repent from sins that we haven't been able to discern and see. This is a difficult thing for us. And one of the problems is the term itself, uh, idols or idolatry. Uh, Immediately what might come to some of our minds would be a golden calf or some figurine or something that's carved and, and worshipped, whether it's a Buddha statue or whether it's something that you've seen in homes or in garages Uh, little shrines and things that are set up. The reality is that idolatry for us is so far from uh, any kind of figurines that we would worship. It is much more complex. It is much more uh, invasive. And it's much more important that we understand what they are so that we can experience what they are, so we can experience the freedom and liberty that is found in knowing and loving Jesus. Well, before I, I get too far, I want to begin uh, with a definition of, of what an idol is. An idol is excessive attachment uh, to any person, thing, or experience in place of Jesus Christ. Again, an idol is excessive attachment to anything at all in the place of Jesus Christ. So we could have a couple categories of idols or two main categories, one of those things that we should completely abstain from and those things that are always sinful. And I'm not going to focus primarily on those things today. But I'm going to focus primarily on the kinds of of people and things and experiences that are good things. But when we become excessively attached to those things, they become our functional gods. So this term idol is perhaps not really helpful. And so perhaps the uh, term or the phrase functional God would be uh, a better one. If I were to ask any one of you, who is your God? We know intellectually our God is Jesus. Our God is the creator. Our God is the triune God of the Bible. But the way that we live out our lives often betrays that confession often betrays that intellectual uh, thing that we know about who God is. In my own life, one of my uh, idols is uh, performance. Performance at work, performance at church in my case. And as a pastor, we have this idol 
of wanting our congregation and our people to be healthy and vibrant and strong. And that is a, a good desire, something that we should want. But when it's something that we are excessively attached to and focused on to the extent that this is my identity, well, now we're into this territory of what my functional God is, is my performance at work or church. And it doesn't matter what your profession is or where, uh, where you work or what your calling is or if you're retired. Those things that we do every day uh, can become uh, our functional gods. Uh, one, uh, one writer uh, says this about uh, idolatry. He says, A careful reading of the Old and New Testaments shows that idolatry is nothing like the crude, simplistic picture that springs to mind of an idol sculpture in some distant country. As the main category to describe unbelief, the idea is highly sophisticated, drawing together the complexities of motivation in individual psychology, the social environment, and also the unseen world, the demonic realm. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. They're in my heart and mind. They are in your hearts and mind as well. And so, in large part, what I want to do today is to help us identify what those are or what they may be. I'm asking that the Holy Spirit is going to do that work um, in, in your life, and we're going to begin uh, looking at Jeremiah, who is preaching against uh, idolatry to his people. We're going to look at what the idolatry was of the Israelites, and then we're going to move and look at a list of ten. Uh, yes, that's ten. It's kind of a bit dangerous when a pastor says ten or any double-digit number in a list. But we're going to look at a list of ten contemporary idolatries. And these aren't the ten most important or the ten most prevalent. Again, I'm just asking that the Holy Spirit is going to be at work as we look at these so that we can better identify our idols. But let's bow our heads and pray before we get into this passage in Jeremiah. Father in heaven, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you that it is clear. And we uh, come before you right now and just acknowledge that our, our lives are uh, complicated at times. It is difficult to understand ourselves. And so I ask today, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as we look at your word and as we look at these various uh, contemporary idols, these, these functional gods, uh, that you would open our eyes to them and we would see their, their lack of, of value and that we would put them in their place or leave them behind completely, those that need to be left behind. So we ask that you would, you would work on our hearts and our minds today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in Jeremiah chapter 2. If you want to go ahead and turn there, well, turn there or get your Bible out, uh, there are Bibles in the front of you uh, if you do not have one. Jeremiah chapter 2, if I can find that, Isaiah, and then Jeremiah. We're going to look at verses 1 through 13. 
hear those pages turning. Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, to Jeremiah, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. So this very brief introduction, uh, Jeremiah is to go and preach to the heart of the nation here. And then we have this prophecy, this word from God, beginning in verse 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. So we see right at the outset we have some good news. And if you're familiar with Jeremiah, it doesn't take long till we get to the bad news. Till we get to the message of repent. The, the message of things are not going well. So we want to linger here for at least a few seconds, at least a few minutes, and enjoy uh, what he is saying. And he is, God is rejoicing over the devotion of Israel to him as they have been freed from Egypt and followed him through. Now, one of the reasons I, I want to linger here a few minutes, few minutes, not just that it's, it, it's uh, beautiful, but that it's, it's meaningful to me. I see the grace of God in these, in these verses. We know the story. We know when the Israelites came out of uh, Egypt, there was a lot of murmuring. There was a lot of complaining. But God here describes their relationship with him as uh, holy to the Lord. That they are his uh, first fruits of his harvest. And he's protecting them, we see, at the end of of verse 3. We see that there is a healthy uh, relationship going on between the people and God. And I know uh, in my own life, in your life, there are times when we are murmuring. There are times where we are complaining. See the grace of God here in these first verses. That, uh, that we can be right with him even when uh, some things maybe uh, are not going exactly the way that we want to. He describes this, this as a honeymoon period, this, these, uh, these first few verses. But everything shifts in, in verse 4. Uh, we have a dramatic change. Take a look at it. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. All you clans of the house of Israel, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? Worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? So we see here in this first section, the first of of four categories of people God mentions, four categories of leaders who have have abandoned him. Uh, We see this in verse uh, verse 5. What fault did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far? So it seems as though the previous generation has strayed far from God. Notice in verse 6 what they failed to do. They failed to cry out to God, where is the Lord? They failed to remember that he brought them out of bondage and gave them this freedom and and promised them this land. They they were going through difficult times, but they didn't cry out to him. They didn't call to him. They didn't look to him. He is upset with them. He is tremendously upset with them. 
Look at verse 7. I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce. But you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, following worthless idols. So we see these other three categories of people. We've seen the fathers, and then in verse 8, the priests did not ask, where is the Lord? In fact, the priests, those who were to serve the word of God, serve the law to the people, and and proclaim it to the people, uh, they did not know him, it says. Uh, Israel is in a very bad place here. The leaders, uh, shepherds, some of your translations may have, the civil leaders have rebelled against me, and the prophets are not prophesying in the name of the covenant God of Israel. They are prophesying by Baal and following worthless idols. We learn uh, a little about uh, Baal here from the uh, ESV uh, study Bible. In this particular idolatry, uh, Baal worship was a Canaanite storm god, considered the source of fertility. He was thought to make the earth and women bear fruit. Such power was important in an agricultural economy. Worship practices included sexual activities for men and women at sacred shrines. Thus, people could worship money, sex, power, and be considered righteous for doing so. So we see that the hearts of the Israelites here, as we know this background, uh, their hearts, like ours, aren't really attracted to figurines or false gods or false deities. But they, like all of the nations around them, uh, wanted uh, things, really. They want crops and they want kids. And as they look to their neighbors, their Canaanite neighbors, they see uh, that this God specializes in that. And this God also happens to have some side benefits that include money and, and sex and power. And so they are all in, in this. The fathers, the priests, the shepherds, the civil leaders, and the prophets. Look at verse 9 as we pick it back up. Therefore, I bring charges against you. We have this courtroom language that comes out now in verse 9, declares the Lord. And I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Kittim and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. God is charging them here with a very strong charge. He's saying, look to these peoples uh, in the west. Look to these peoples in the east. Look at all of these people worshiping these, these false gods. They have been faithful to their false gods. But you have been unfaithful to the true God, and have gone after their false gods. No one has seen anything like this. He is upset with Israel. Verse 12, he calls a witness. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. He's calling creation as a witness to Israel's abandonment of the covenant God of Israel who delivered them from slavery. Be appalled, O heavens, 
and shudder with great horror. And we come to the final verse that we're going to look at this morning, which shows the two sins that they have committed here. Look at verse 13. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Sin number one, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, true refreshment, true nourishment, true freedom, true liberty. They have forsaken me, and they have dug their own cisterns. They have made their own idols. And these cisterns are broken. They do not hold water. They are worthless. This is idolatry imagery here. This is functional God imagery. And he's using one of, these most, most, one of the most precious commodities in the ancient Near East and also in the Near East today, which is water, to describe himself. God himself is described as the spring of living water. And the ancient Israelites had three sources, basically, to get water. They had the fresh spring that was the best water uh, to find and to, uh, to, to come about and drink and to enjoy. It was safe. It was refreshing. We were on a hike on Friday in the Sierras, our family, and we came across this spring coming up out of the ground. Uh, that, that is what God is uh, comparing himself to here. But there's another kind of water. There's the water in wells that, that, that went into the table water. And that was kind of uh, level two, class two of water, as it were. But then there were uh, cisterns that uh, were man-made, these big, uh, big holes in the ground. There's a picture of one of them here. This is from uh, some years ago when uh, I went to Israel. You probably can't pick me out in the crowd there, but uh, I'm over there on the left. But if you can see uh, this cistern here, you can see that there's a stairway that goes down into it. Because these cisterns would often be low. Water was scarce. And as the water got low, it, it became increasingly full of, full of gurdui. Is that an okay word to use? Is there a better word to use there? Just, just nasty. The water just got nasty. And so this is the imagery that God is using. This is what you are going after with these false idols. This nasty, gross water, these cisterns leak it out, and if there happens to be any in there, you've got to go down to the bottom, and it is nasty. This is what you are going after in life, Israel. And of course, this passage is not just for the Israelites. It is for us today. And we, too, go after a variety of things in the place of God, things that we are actively attached to, that do not bring peace, that do not bring joy, ultimately, that do not bring uh, sustenance, that do not bring freedom, that do not bring liberty. And what I want to do in the rest of our time is look at this uh, list of, of these ten, uh, ten idols or these ten functional gods. And my prayer is that the Lord would help us whether yours are on this list or not, this list could have been 20 or 30 or 40. And in fact, my prayer is that uh, there's going to be some discussion at, at lunch today in shepherd groups uh, about um, what particular um, idols you have going on in your heart and in your life. So the first one uh, that I want to look at is uh, family or success uh, idol. 
family or success, family success idol. And what I'm getting at here is, um, is the fact that many of us uh, become excessively attached to our children or to our grandchildren and their success, their success academically or their success financially or their success socially or uh, even spiritually, whatever it may be. So uh, we could say uh, something like this, my meaning in life and my self-worth depend upon the success of my children and my grandchildren. Now, why does this happen to us? This is what I mean by we need to not only be known as people of the word, but we need to be known as people who search our, who search our souls. Why does this happen to us? Well, there's a lot of answers to that question. Why might we become excessively attached to our, our children's success or our grandchildren's success? Uh, one, uh, one reason might be that, that uh, things aren't going too well for ourselves. Things aren't going that well for me. And I want uh, something much, much better uh, for, my, for my children or my grandchildren, which is, a, which is a good thing to want. It's an honorable thing to want them to be successful. The problem here, again, is when we become excessively attached to that, and this is what is driving my life. So what do we do if this is our situation, if this is our idol? Well, we might say, well, we shouldn't, um, shouldn't want or shouldn't, uh, shouldn't want success so much or shouldn't um, perhaps love our, our children or our grandchildren so much. Well, that's not a very good solution. It's not a right solution. Um, what we need to do is to love our God so much and understand him rightly that we are not vulnerable to these, uh, to these kind of uh, cisterns that, that, that leak uh, loving and, and uh, going crazy over the success of our children or our grandchildren. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, It is probably impossible to love any human being simply too much. We may love him too much in proportion to our love for God, but it is the smallness of our love for God not the greatness of our love for the man or for the child or for the grandchild that constitutes the inordinacy. So the problem is the relationship between our love for our kids or our grandkids or whoever it is compared to our love for God. We need to put that desire in its place. We don't need to get rid of it. In fact, we need to love our kids and desire their success probably even more than we do. But we need to put it in its place under uh, a love for God that is, that is off the chart. Are you tracking with me here on this first one? Okay. So that's, uh, that's number one, family success uh, idol. Number two uh, is kind of a subcategory of that. I'm calling it relationship uh, idol, the relationship idol. And this is when a, a particular relationship becomes the function as the most important thing in our life. This is what I'm excessively attached to. This is something that, that happens to all of us probably that are married. My meaning in life and, and self-worth depend upon finding Mr. or Miss, Miss Wright or not losing Mr. or Miss Wright. So again, the solution, if we're married and we are finding ourselves um, excessively attached uh, to uh, our spouse to the point where the Lord is not primary, the Lord is not ultimate to the point where we have tremendous fear, anxiety about loss, 
that's when we're in the domain where, where this may be one of our idols. And what we need to do, again, is not love our spouse less, but we need to understand how infinite and glorious and beautiful and more majestic the love of God and the truth of the gospel is even then our most precious relationship on earth, our marriage relationship, the covenant of marriage. So relationship uh, idolatry, a relationship can be an idol, and the same thing can happen as we're looking to be married. So that's the second one. Uh, My meaning, uh, does Christ, here's a question, a diagnostic question to ask This uh, at the bottom here. Does Christ satisfy and sustain me more than, and you fill in the blank. It's a diagnostic question for us to ask and find out what our idols are. Does Christ satisfy and sustain me more than whoever? Relationship idolatry. Number uh, three, approval idolatry. Here, uh, the question, uh, the, uh, the diagnostic uh, sentence to utilize my meaning in life and, and self-worth depend on receiving love or respect from, and we fill in the blank. Approval idolatry. Uh, we, um, we are often looking for the approval of others uh, to, uh, to affirm us, to make us feel good. Again, we want people to affirm us. We want people to uh, love us. But when our meaning in life or self-worth is dependent upon those feelings that we get, then we are moving into the territory of a, of a cistern that's, that's leaking water. Uh, we're moving into the territory of God uh, not being our God, but the approval of others being our God. Number four, uh, image. Uh, so here's the question. Do I believe that Christ's approval is superior and personally directed toward me? It's, it's, it's easier for us sometimes uh, to, to, to find our, our satisfaction in someone that we can touch and know and, 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 and walk along with. And it can be more difficult to, to believe this. We need the grace of God. We need him to show up in our lives so that we believe that his approval is superior and that it's personally directed toward me. This is something that we emphasize in our churches as well. We are a people of God, but also God loves individually. Approval idolatry. Number four, uh, image idolatry. Image idolatry. And here what I'm getting at is my meaning in life and self-worth depends upon my appearance or upon my body image. This is something that is just uh, rampant in our culture that we have value based upon having a sculpted body or a certain appearance, and especially uh, others complimenting or affirming me because of that. Again, we want to, be, uh, we, we want to make ourselves look well. The solution isn't to, to be ugly and to, uh, to, to so to, to go in that direction. The solution is to know that God has fearfully and wonderfully made you, that you are precious in his eyes, that you are made in his image. Zephaniah three seventeen, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. 
I love that. We'll rejoice over you with singing. Some of you need to, to dwell there. Recognize that God's love is superior than any love any person can give you. And he rejoices over you with singing. This is given to, to Israel corporately, but it applies to us individually as well. Our approval uh, should not be coming primarily from, our, uh, from others or from the way that we look or compliments from others, but from the Lord himself who has created us uh, in his image. So that's image idolatry. The next one is money and materialism idolatry. And this is somewhat of a, uh, a, sub, uh, a sub one as well, involving both uh, approval and, and control that we'll, we'll get to. So here I have my meaning in life and self-worth depend upon my net worth, my, ha- my house, car, clothing, etc. We can go on a variety of things, but we have to dig a little deeper and do a little analysis when it comes to money and materialism. So I kind of have this one broken up into two. Uh, the first one is related to approval idolatry. And this is uh, some of us are tempted toward money and materialism so that we can get these things, so that we can spend our money on houses, on cars, on clothing, so that others might see us and see us as successful or see us as beautiful or see us as part of the crowd or something of that sort. So that can be one of the the motivations, one of the idolatrous motivations for money and materialism. But it also could relate to control. Control, uh, the idol of control, control idolatry, the way I'm putting it here. Control, um, some of us, um, our idol is I'm okay as long as I am able to control everything. As long as I'm able to have life the way that I want it. And so one of the ways that I get life the way that I want it is I just I have a really big bank account. And I'm, and I'm protected and insulated uh, from that. And I can just make things happen the way that I want to. There's no temptation to have expensive cars or expensive homes or to have fancy clothing. But I want my life this certain way. And this is the condition upon which I'm going to be happy. So this is... Analysis of money and materialism, idolatry. And by now, we're about halfway through these things. You see that we are a long way from figurines and from idols. We're, we're a long way from what might come to our mind, Buddha statues and little shrines in, in uh, basements or in garages that we've seen. We're coming right into where we live. So number six, uh, we have, I have as entertainment idolatry. Uh, entertainment idolatry. Before we get there, uh, let, before we get to that quote, let me just say, uh, again, as we talk about each of these, we kind of have to put them into two categories. Uh, we talk about every, all of these different types of uh, idolatries that exist. Some of them are just outright sinful. And those we need to not put in their place, but we need to abstain from. And so when it comes to entertainment, there are certain types of in- entertainment that are just simply uh, sinful and wrong. And we should abstain, that we shouldn't have any part in. Pornography, of course, would be that category. Uh, even some news shows uh, are all about gossip. I mean, we don't watch that much TV, but we watch the news almost every night, my wife and I. And sometimes we find ourselves watching the news and we're like, what, what are we watching here? 
we're watching someone's dirty laundry and gossip, and we've just got to hit that fast-forward button. It, it, it's not news. So there's certain, certain types of entertainment that we need to just abstain from as believers. But uh, there's other types of entertainment, and I think I put my slides uh, in, in wrong order here, so we'll come back to that one. So here, here's, what I was, uh, here's, here's a way to take a look at this. My meaning in life and self-worth depend upon movies or TV or music or books um, or the Internet. These kinds of things we can become um, excessively attached to. Some of them we need to completely abstain from. And this is what uh, Piper is referring to that's popped up here a couple times. This is his own personal take on this. He says this. He says, I have a high tolerance. He's talking about media and movies. I have a high tolerance for violence, a high tolerance for bad language, and zero tolerance for nudity. There is a reason for these differences. The violence is make-believe. They don't really mean those bad words. But that lady is really naked, and I am really watching. And somewhere, she has a broken-hearted father. This is something that we should have no part of. This is an idol that we need to leave behind. Uh, in our lives. It is, that is a massive problem um, in men in, in, uh, in our culture and in our churches. But there's also just the regular uh, entertainment um, that we need to be careful about. And so take a look at this kind of as a diagnostic tool. This first question here. Are Christ people qualification? The dominant influences in your home. That is an important question to ask. You read it again. Are Christ in the Bible, without question, the dominant influences in your home? When time with God is in direct competition with a TV show, a DVD, going to a movie, attending a sports event, um, it's Sunday, we got NFL football coming up here. That's near some of our minds. Not mine, of course but uh, some of our minds. To which does your heart go? God's word to you today is that the Holy Spirit is capable of opening the eyes of your heart to long for Christ more than entertainment. You see, the real issue here isn't abstaining from football. We're not sinners if we watch football uh, on Sundays. Maybe if you're rooting for the Seahawks, that could be a problem. But um, what we need to do is put football... We need to put football in its place. And so we need to do an evaluation of our hearts. Does my heart pound more for, this, for the football game or for the World Series, for, uh, for the Giants party, or is it for the Lord Jesus Christ? We need to be good visions of our own souls and identify what our idolatries are If we don't know what they are, we can't repent of them. We can't be free from them. So we've through number six here. Let me pick up the pace um, a little bit. Helping idolatry. Now, helping someone who is in need is a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. But some of us can become obsessively attached and dependent to helping others. And so I have no value. I have no happiness. I have no joy if I'm not... Serving, if the phone isn't ringing and somebody needs me, if I'm not chasing after the latest crisis, then, then I'm, I'm feeling worthless. So even helping those in need 
can, can become one of the strongest idols for us in the church especially. C.S. Lewis again writes, uh, writes this. We'll get to that in a minute. So here's the diagnosis. My meaning in life and self-worth depend upon fill-in-the-blank needing me. This is what we're talking about here. My meaning in life worth depend upon someone or some group of people needing me. We need to break free from that. Here's C.S. Lewis. He says, this terrible need to be needed often finds its outlet in pampering an animal. I'm hearing some laughs of of resonance out there. Uh, Some of us have this. Some of us have seen this tendency uh, where our relationship with our animals can become idolatrous. Now, I could tell a lot of stories here involving horses and a variety of things, but I'm not going to go there. But I'm going to tell one story. Um, each, uh, we, we go down to Southern California a lot. And on the 101 freeway down there in Westlake Village, we often see this huge billboard that attracts our attention because we're always uh, wondering if our, uh, we've got dogs and we love our dogs. And if our dogs are okay, as we've put them in, in the uh, kennel or have had a young lady who, who helps us and, and watches over our dogs. And so there are these huge, there's this huge billboard that we see for the Barkley Pet Hotel and Day Spa in Westlake Village. Now, I looked this up this week. I haven't looked it up before. I've never been there. But I looked it up on the website this week. And I've just got to read you this paragraph, okay? The new 32,000-square-foot Barkley Pet Hotel and Day Spa allows owners to choose from a variety of spacious overnight accommodations for their pets, ranging from traditional guest rooms to luxury suites complete with flat-screen televisions, webcam access, and custom furniture. The guest services menu makes sure each pet stays active with an array of activity options designed to fit every lifestyle. The salon and day spa offer simple spa baths to full body massages and potty cures. That's P-A-W-D-I-C-U-R-E-S, potty cures. And the day camp is a cage-free, drug-friendly outlet to express, uh, to expend excess energy, socialize, and exercise. <laughs> so, so why would, why would we need a webcam in our dog's suite so that my dog can see me on my iPhone or my iPad as I'm traveling on vacation because my dog needs me. My dog needs me. And what we're really talking about is I need my dog. What we're really talking about is a possible idolatry here. <clears throat> now, I love dogs. I love animals. I even like horses, especially when other people own them and have them. I... I'm not, uh, the solution isn't to get rid of our animals. The solution is to have our love for Jesus Christ be so strong that our animals are put in their place and that we don't need to see them and have them see us uh, on our cell phones as we travel. This is something that is going on. I'm sure it's just in Southern California. (laughs) The people down there are so much more worldly than we are. Um, Okay, I need to move along. Helping idolatry... Um, I think we're through that. A couple more. This one is a difficult one. Suffering idolatry. 
Now, as a pastor, we see a lot of people who are in crisis, a lot of people who have uh, a tragedy. And what happens when we go through a tragedy is if we're part of a healthy church, people come out of the woodwork and they love us and they come around us and they pray for us and they do things for us. And what happens sometimes is we find ourselves um, excessively attached to that love and care that comes. And so in a way that's kind of hard to describe, I don't think anyone actually goes after this, but we actually kind of move from suffering to suffering, and we find ourselves in that place. In a sense, we find our sustenance there. My meaning in life and my self-worth depend upon personal suffering. Only during these times am I able to feel loved or deal with guilt. And so some people are just moving from crisis to crisis to crisis. And perhaps those are real crisis and they have no idol going on, but perhaps there is actually, uh, uh, their, their crisis can be functioning as a God in their life. And this is, this is, this is where my sustenance is. This is how I'm going to make it through life when others come around me, suffering idolatry. Control idolatry. Uh, we've kind of already touched on this one a little bit. Um, where I, my excessive attachment is, is I've got to be in control of others or in control of my own life. I am okay with God as long as things are going exactly the way that I want to. And we've already talked about the person who has the money in the bank account. They may live a very frugal and a very modest life, but they may have control idolatry. And then the final one, number 10, um, or I, I didn't hit this, my meaning in life and self-worth depend upon my ability to have things the way that I want them. Final one, number 10, is uh, what I'm calling adrenaline idolatry. And this one is uh, personally for me. So I've put this up here. My meaning in life and self-worth come from exercise or from competition or from winning, from winning. Yesterday, I'm coaching eight and under girls soccer, and we get a goal scored on us. And I start to just, my heart just starts to move. We can't lose this game. I can't lose this game can beat this team and I can just get moving in this direction where I am far from the Lord, far from the gospel and excessively attached to winning. The same thing can happen to me when I'm mountain biking. If I'm all alone, I had some of the best times with the Lord biking, enjoying his creation. But man, somebody near me climbing on and they're catching me. I can move to a whole nother place. Where my functional God is, I am beating you up the hill. Now, if that's a woman that's catching me, now I am really sinning. Now I am really, really in trouble. So adrenaline idolatry can be something that we are uh, excessively attached to. This desire to win, this desire uh, to, uh, to win at all costs. This can happen in the business realm. This can happen in sports. This can happen in quilting. This can happen in any realm. It can happen in any realm. Can I get some amens from my quilters out there? <laughs> All right. So I think, I think we've uh, covered enough territory. My prayer is that the Lord would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would not uh, find ourselves in the place back to Jeremiah where they were, where they have, they have said no to the fresh, eternal living water of the covenant God and they have said yes to these leaky cisterns
to be far away from that. I'm going to close uh, with uh, John 4. Let's look at this together and I'll be done. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. We see this. Jesus Christ is our living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right. When you say you have no husband, the fact is you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Jesus here has just identified her idolatry. He has just identified her excessive attachment to something in the place of God. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. That's got to be the understatement of John's gospel there. He is more than a prophet. He is living water. Will sustain us. He will sustain us and nothing else will. Let's bow our heads. Pray. Father in heaven, we confess to you again as we did in the beginning of the service that we run after a variety of things from success for ourselves to success for our children and our grandchildren to, to needing to be needed by our animals to wanting to win. Lord, help us to be discerning and to put these things in their place. Help us to see you as superior, as beautiful, as life-giving, as sustaining, and as refreshing. Help us, God, to see you as the spring of living water that you are. Help us to embrace Jesus and his gospel and his great and satisfying love for each of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.